Welcome to the Making of the Islamic World. I'm Chris Grayton. If you're hearing this through the Ottoman History Podcast website, the Making of the Islamic World is a series of podcasts intended for the university classroom. With each episode, we provide a bibliography of readings associated with the topic, as well as readings and other activities great for group discussion or for simply exploring on your own. This installment of our series is about a place that we haven't really discussed much yet. Sub-Saharan Africa makes up over 15% of the world's Muslim population, and its share is continually rising. Roughly a quarter of the world's majority Muslim countries are in Africa, and most of those are in West Africa. More than 95% of people in countries like Mauritania, Senegal, Niger, and Mali are Muslim. In Nigeria, Muslims are only a slight majority, but there are still more Muslims living there than in Egypt, Iran, or Turkey. Those facts alone merit West Africa's inclusion in our survey as a center of the Islamic world. But as we'll discuss in this episode, there are dimensions of West Africa's history that give it particular importance for understanding global history and Islam's place in it. When we put Africa at the center of Islamic history, uh, we're challenged to take Islam seriously as a message to humanity. And if we do that, then we have to deal with prophetic statements like, I was sent to the red and the black. We have to deal with uh, verses in the Quran like verse 13 in Hujrat, O mankind, indeed we created you from a male and a female and made you into peoples, into tribes, so that you may know one another. Right? We have to deal with scriptures like uh, Arum, uh, verse 22, and among his signs are the creation of the heavens and the earth and the variations in your languages and colors. Truly in this are signs for those who know. These examples, uh, they're not a justification of the kind of uh, spiritual bypassing that's popular among some uh, apologists of Islam. You know, that there's no race in Islam or that Islam is colorblind. But what these citations do is encourage us uh, to go through human difference to arrive at responding to the question, what does it mean to be human, instead of pretending that uh, difference doesn't matter. Wendell Marsh is assistant professor of African-American and African studies at Rutgers University, Newark, where he teaches a class called Islam and Blackness in Global History. In my course, Islam and Blackness, I'm trying to encounter the problem of, of historical difference. In the words of uh, Dalia Gubara, I want us to be taken and shaken by other times and places. What that means is moving from our certainties, certainties around you know race and religion, and moving backward and peeling away and thinking of how our certainties relate to other forms of human difference, the extent to which they existed in other times and places or not. And in the case of uh, blackness, I'm choosing that very uh, intentionally as opposed to the traditional framing of race. Because in this course, I'm trying to engage with, but also depart from black studies, uh, which has, has a very robust theorization of blackness as a modern phenomenon. Black studies has really dealt with 
and historic depth and theoretical complexity, how to think about blackness as the organizing principle of the modern world, to think with someone like Sadia Hartman as objection, as social death and kinlessness of the uneven distribution of death in a time uh, that is otherwise characterized by an increasing control over the management of the processes of death and dying. All of this is very useful to think with, even if it is incomplete and uneasy, or one is given a sense of unease in thinking through the pre-modern. I think that when we pivot to think about the historical specificity of Africans and the African diaspora and the long arc of Islamic history, there are obvious problems with applying too much directly from uh, modern experiences. Of course, in particular, we have to attend to the differing nature of power in the modern versus the pre-modern, right? So the first is segregationist. It is administrative, biological, and ultimately absolutist. Whereas the pre-modern is assimilationist. Take, for example, the durable structure of pre-Islamic social organization. Tribe, uh, tribal organization has been called an institution of incorporation. Kinless people could become kin across the color line. There are possibilities of social mobility. There was no parallel structure for this in Atlantic slave societies, even if some families were, in fact, crossing the, the uh, color line. And yet, you know, when we read the poetry of Antara or the polemics of Jahiz uh, in his boasts of the blacks over the whites, we sense a certain family resemblance to people today we want to call black with these pre-moderns. Um, and so in the class, we're trying to attend to these ambiguities, uh, these kind of incomplete parts that become less ambiguous and more certain with the gradual racialization of slavery we see over the course of the late medieval, early modern and modern periods. New research increasingly shows that questions of race have been part of the relationship between Africa and the Islamic world from the beginning. But studying that relationship requires bearing in mind that what we mean by race varies from context to context. Blackness may emerge in sources from different periods of history, but that doesn't mean it signified the same things that it does today. The same could be said with regard to Islamic law, or Sharia, which also has a long history in Africa. The presence of the religion on the continent dates as far back as the, the earliest days of Islam um, when a group of Muslims um, you know, sought refuge in Abyssinia, which we now know as um, you know, present-day Ethiopia, um, you know, fleeing persecution um, you know, in Mecca. And so there was a period when um, you know, the foundational legal texts were still um, in the process of coming into, into existence. So the Quran was still being revealed, the actions you know, and sayings of the Prophet God, God's blessings on him were also, you know, still, you know, um, you know, coming into existence. But in terms of, you know, sort of West Africa in particular, 
scholars, you know, um, have dated, um, you know, the, the, the presence of Islam to the ninth century. Historians also argue that Islam must have existed in the areas of the Lake Chad Basin area. Some of that is indeed Niger, but also Nigeria, Chad, you know, Cameroons as we currently know it, at some point before the 11th century. Um, and so, you know, um, as far back as that time, you know, Islamic law had come um, into existence. Um, its origins was really true of, of Africa. In the West was through the Sahara, so through the Trans-Sahara, um, you know, trade routes. And so the messengers of Islam, as, you know, scholars like Usman Khan would argue, were scholars, um, you know, traders and Sufis who, you know, who brought. And, and these identities were not always sort of mutually exclusive, right? So, you know, scholars were also traders, some were also Sufis um, who brought both the religion as well as um, the religious legal tradition um, with them across the Sahara. And what's so really striking about this moment is that this was the moment when the foundational uh, legal, um, you know, um, principles, you know, the, the, for instance, the four Sunni schools, um, you know, of, of Islamic jurisprudence came into existence between the 8th and the 9th century. So it was really as Islam was coming to that region across the Sahara that this foundational legal text, um, you know, this, um, you know, that the foundations of Islamic jurisprudence, as we now know it today, was coming to existence, right? Because obviously there was no need for sort of a body of jurisprudence at the earliest of times, uh, but, you know, um, after the first set of Muslims, jurists sort of wanted to, um, you know, to systematize the, the legal tradition. And so um, it's really um, interesting that it's just when it was coming in, right, um, into West Africa, that the, the legal tradition itself was being built, which then creates sort of this, you know, system of, you know, of, of you know, growth and it's dynamic because it was not cast in stone already before it came into the region. Rabiat Akande is a scholar at the Harvard Academy for International and Area Studies. She has a doctorate in law and is licensed to practice in both Nigeria and New York State. But her scholarly work is very much situated in the past. I actually turned to history, right, because I was so, you know, I was so bothered, right, by the deadlock in Nigeria's constitutional um, discourse, right? So, you know, there's been, as far as I can remember, there's always been a debate about, you know, um, the Sharia and about, um, you know, the, the Muslims, um, you know, Muslims in Nigeria seeking um, a return to pre-colonial um, Sharia, um, of you know, or for the creation, actually, more more accurately, for the creation of Sharia institutions, you know, and and Christians opposing that. And what's really striking is that both groups have invoked, you know, the pastors, you know, in support of the oppositions, right? Um, even though you know the past that is invoked by both groups are so like you know radically like they can't possibly coexist. And so I was just really, I was just really sort of drawn to like understand right why. Both sides have such different memories of the colonial experience, um, you know, and you know and what exactly was going on, um, and and so that's you know really how I got into this, right? So like you know the, the historian's regression, um, you know, as 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 it's as it's usually called. Again, that's how I got you know into you know into thinking about history as a way to figure out how our legal you know ideas, our legal arguments, our legal debates travel over time. Um, and how, you know, they, they are actually, you know, inherited. So this is not to say, right, that we ought to be always, you know, fixated on the colonial past. But what um, history does for me, right, is to show, right, there are always, you know, alternative, alternative paths that, that are not taken, right, that are current, right, you know, the Nigeria's, um, you know, deadlock. It was not already predetermined, right, um, and, and it's, you know, it's the case in other, you know, parts of the world as well, that our notion of what, um, it means to bring back the Sharia today, you know, we could have gone another road, for instance, like, so we can, there are alternatives. And just realizing that opens up possibilities, right, for what, you know, a future um, can look like. 
Both Rabiat Akande and Wendell Marsh are scholars who work on the modern history of Islam in West Africa. Interrogating how Islam has transformed inevitably takes them back to its earlier history. Because many of the limitations in how people understand Islam in the modern context are rooted in an incomplete understanding of its past. To delve deeper into that past, I spoke with Anne McDougall, who teaches at the University of Alberta. She has decades of experience working on the history of West Africa. I was amazed to see what I said in 1983, which <laughs> scares me when I think about how long ago that was. Um, but, but I actually realized that what I said in 1983 is exactly pretty much what I still believe. For many parts of Africa, pre-modern textual sources are limited, which means that scholars who work on earlier periods are engaged in some of the most innovative and interdisciplinary historical research out there. Scholars of West Africa are somewhat less limited in this regard, but their approach is similar. We use this combination of material sources that, that we're putting, it's like putting puzzles together, only when you put a puzzle together, usually all the pieces are, you know, of one nature. Um, it's either three-dimensional or it's flat or it's whatever. Here, it's like we're putting together puzzles made of all different, you know, so we have, we have, we have uh, Arabic texts, you know, that, that come from outside, people who were looking at the Sahara and West Africa and, and interpreting it through their vision. We have people in the Sahara who are writing about the, you know, they're writing about their society as they understand it. And, and we have, of course, uh, after the fact, we have archaeological work that, you know, that's a lot of what we know or think we know about places like Outagost and Ghana come from archaeological work. In fact, that's you know, one of the most important challenges to some of these external sources. And then we also have oral tradition. That's another piece, I think, that is hugely important for understanding this early society. And, and, and you know, it has to be worked with in a completely different way than we're working with these, these written texts, obviously differently than, than archaeology. But nevertheless, I think they need to be, you know, we need to throw them in the mix and see, you know, see what they stir up. For McDougall, the starting point for studying Islam in West Africa isn't really where the most people live there today, nor is it an adjacent region of the Islamic world like North Africa. Rather, we need to pay attention to the Sahara Desert itself, which in some places is more than 1,000 miles across, north to south. McDougall's work has focused on the southern edge of the Sahara, in a region known as the Sahel. It, people tended to look at, well, they didn't look at the Sahara at all. What they were looking at was the sort of relationship between sort of North Africa and, quote, sub-Saharan West Africa. So I sort of decided to dive into the Southern Sahara, attempting to look from that perspective. And uh, in, in so doing, I was sort of re-examining the nature of the relationship, particularly around the desert edge. And, and I realized that's really where the focus was. The Sahel is on the border of a number of West African countries today. But in the pre-modern period, it was at the center of a trans-regional economy. You're absolutely right that we tend not to think of the desert uh, as having resources that, that people actually want and that can be exploited. And that's part of the whole idea that we cross the desert or, you know, we bridge it or it's a barrier, but we don't talk about what's in it. The Sahara was, and still is, rich in something absolutely essential for human life. Salt. 
Today, many of us suffer from too much salt in our diets. But in the pre-modern world, salt was scarce and extremely valuable. That's because without salt, humans and livestock can die. Salt deficiencies in the body create some of the same symptoms as dehydration. And salt was also useful for preserving perishable foods before the invention of refrigeration. So it's much more than a mineral that adds a little taste to food. And it turns out that some of the same environments that have all the natural resources to support a large population can be actually very poor in salt. The Sahara had what they lacked. There were salts that were produced along the desert coast. And this is, these would be areas in which the ocean floods the, the coastal regions for part of the year. Ocean salt water pools and in these, these pools will then evaporate with this really hot sunshine. And there are some areas where the, the salt content of this sort of evaporated water is so high that people can actually take it out in, in bars, in chunks. Now there are other parts, other areas where it isn't quite that solid, but it forms a kind of loose salt, almost the way we think of salt in our salt shakers today uh, and it can be collected it can be sort of scraped up it can be put in, in sacks and we do know that around the by the 11th and 12th century for sure there was one of these areas that was producing enough salt that apparently that it was being transported into the desert and uh, and in, into places like ancient Mali. the other main kind of salt that uh, you find in much of the desert is salt that was uh, formed from very you know, ancient lake beds. Um, so there is a time in, in history when a lot of the Sahara was actually very wet and very green, and there are these sort of depressions, in, in, and in those areas you had lakes. And you know, over time, as Sahara dries up, etc., a lot of these lakes become sort of, they, they, they dry up, but they also become covered with sand, and, and I mean, sometimes several meters of sand, um, but they, they remain. They are, they are literally, they've formed, they've dried up, and they become layers of salt. There are several of these areas, particularly the most well-known one being a huge depression area north of Timbuktu in the central Sahara. And there are many areas there that, in which this underground salt can be dug out, and it's dug out in slabs. Uh, and then the last uh, kind of salt, and, I, and this is important, not in the region so much that I'm dealing, that I was talking about, but in, in the sort of more easterly region, center to east, what is today uh, sort of Niger and Chad. And there you have massive industries of deliberately creating a situation rather than like on the coast where you have a naturally formed, you know, these pools that form in depressions along the coast. Here they're created. So they literally create pools of, again, this is water, that it's, it's salt water, it's bringing up salt from deep in the, in the Sahara. And pools are created and then uh, again, the sun evaporates the water. There's a whole process by which you take a, a pool, you, you let a crust form, then you break it, and it reforms, and then you break it again, and it reforms. And in the end, you end up with salt that you can then pack in bags or baskets or whatever. And this can, and then it, you leave it to dry, and it gets hard. And it becomes like massive cones of salt or baskets of salt or whatever. 
And it can be, again, transported hundreds of kilometers for that matter. Um, and so the whole sort of central, this is the region that, that Paul Lovejoy has worked on. And uh, so again, these are, you know, right across the Sahara, different kinds of salts, but all, you know, formed from the very, very long history of what the Sahara is. If I, if I could find a key element of this story, it was, it was salt in the sense that this was a commodity that was controlled by these desert pastoralists. And it was a commodity that was needed by populations to the south for health reasons. And in turn, these people also supplied to the pastoralists things like grain and, and other foodstuffs. They also supplied, uh, in exchange for salt, slaves, which could then in turn be used as labor to again produce things that the pastoralists wanted. And it was traded for gold. And that is the one commodity for sure that was geared to a trans-Saharan trade that, that moved to North Africa. But just about everything else I've talked about really was initially a part of an interregional and a desert edge set of, of, of commercial networks. The salt trade also reveals that many of the binaries historians had taken for granted, such as the strict division between nomadic, pastoralists, and settled agricultural communities, were mistaken. Too often people just assume, you know, well, they're, they're camel pastoralists, they just lived off their camels and their milk, and, and everything we know about pastoral society suggests that is very rarely the case. And so, you know, I was looking at, well, what did these people need? Did they, you know, did they consume grain? Did they, you know, and, and as I looked at it, it became quite clear to me that a lot of, uh, if you could sort of characterize this society, it very much of it had to do with sort of conflict over resources for their sort of pastoralism. But another huge part of their society, their economy, um, was geared towards relationships with non-pastoralists, whether that be north of the Sahara, you know, or to just on the southern edge, which is what I was looking at. And so the emphasis on the sort of conflict that supposedly dominated this southern desert edge had been, to my mind, was, was much exaggerated. And what was not being looked at, more to the point, were ways in which these desert peoples, what were the nature of their relationships with these people to, to the south? Um, and not just ancient Ghana, but people throughout that, that whole region. What I did argue was that much of the time what you actually see is um, economic exchange, a sort of interdependency along the desert edge for commodities that they supply to the south and the south supply to them. Many examples of political alliances to, to defend their interests or to, to expand their interests. And, and alliances that were not defined in terms of pastoralist versus, cultiv versus cultivator or Muslim versus non-Muslim um, or white versus black, but political alliances that were you know, focused on joint allied political goals, just like any other sort of political economy that you would talk about. That's the way I began to see the Southern Sahara as a kind of political economy in which the dynamic around the sort of desert edge was a, a, a driving catalyst or a driving force. Salt was the Sahara's most valuable commodity. And during the first century CE, the desert began to transform from a major barrier between North Africa and the rest of the continent to a major conduit for trade, thanks to the introduction of camels and camel caravans. 
The states of the Sahel, meaning the edge or coast of the Sahara, grew wealthy as the caravan trade expanded, and they converted mineral wealth into political power. Though the desert trade predated the arrival of Islam, it was in this region that the first major Islamic polities emerged in West Africa. We want to draw those lines on the map, and we want to put a date around them. And, and I, I think in, in so doing, we've obscured that very dynamic that you're asking about. To me, there's a reason why these supposed empires that we talk so much about develop if you look where they develop. They develop, they develop right across the, you know, the Sahel, right across that desert edge, which I think is, should be drawing our attention because I think that's a key, that desert edge and the opportunities it offered for economic development. Um, and economic development in turn offer possibilities for the creation, I'm going to use the word, for the creation of power. How do you take a particular form of wealth, whatever that might be, whether it's the control of salt or the control of gold, or you know, or the the the, the, the control over a region through which trade must pass. How do you take that potential, you know, and turn it into actual power? And I think the answer is not always the same. That's that's the whole point. And that's where our problem is with trying to attach power to the idea of this sedentary you know, kingdom where we draw lines and everybody knows where the frontiers are. I think that's why the Southern Saharas and the Desert Edge is so interesting because power isn't so much about that, that sedentary. It, power very much had to do in that, those regions with mobility, with seasonal movement, with, with the, the ability to, to um, you know, control different, different resources that then in turn became part of that network, then it's, a, then it's a dynamic process where you watch and you see where do alliances occur. Uh, in, in this particular region, uh, contrary to a lot of the initial interpretations in literature, you had pastoralists who were um, Muslim of Berber origin allied with we call it, you know, black Africans, who were not Berbers, I'll put it that way, um, who were Soninke or who were some other ethnicity of, of the south of the Sahara. You had them working together, fighting together. They were allies. The source base for the early history of Islam in West Africa is paltry. But it seems that rulers and communities were beginning to embrace Islam around the same time as it was happening in other regions of the Islamic world, like Central Asia, from which Turkic dynasties like the Seljuks, who we discussed in episode 3, would emerge during the 11th century. So by and large, uh, Islam spreads um, through West Africa in a very gradual process that takes a very long period of time, in fact, several centuries. Uh, the process is most characterized by exchange. And by exchange, of course, I mean uh, trade in goods, but there's a, a broader kind of exchange that's happening in between through different societies within West Africa and, of course, through the processes of trade 
to other regions uh, of Africa, right, in all the broader world. What is clear is that the services Muslims provided to uh, states, in particular imperial states, were uh, very useful services. And of course, they included uh, specialized knowledge around trade, navigation, etc., uh, but of course, uh, writing and divination of various sorts, right? And so these were very powerful skills for one to have. And the earliest written record we have of embrace of Islam by one of these kind of rulers um, is that of Warjabi in Takrur in the um, 11th uh, century. And, you know, the story more or less goes that there had been an extended drought uh, for a number of years. And all of the specialists of ancestral religion who were in Warjabi's court are unable to do anything about the drought. They couldn't bring uh, rain. And there is a stranger who is uh, Muslim who appears and uh, basically says that, you know, you know, if you convert, if you embrace Islam, then uh, rain will come. And he, Warjabi does, and it indeed rains. And so the, the first record that we have may be a kind of symbolic oral tradition that's been transcribed, or it might have been a historical personality. Either way, I think it speaks to uh, this dynamic of services rendered that have kind of real effects in the world and that kind of organized reality in a way um, for rulers of political formations of various kinds in this early period. As such, Islam is most associated with the courts of uh, rulers. They, in return for exchanging these services, they, are, they were often given kind of spaces of autonomy in these, uh, a pattern that we discern very early on in the Empire of Ghana, for example, in which kind of there's a Muslim quarter. Historians used to call this the kind of quarantine phase where, uh, you know, it's thought that Islam is almost like a contagion and it's being withheld from uh, the common population. And, you know, thankfully, historians have moved away from that language and that idea. But what is important to recognize about this uh, division or the circumscribed role of Muslims within a given state is really important to recognize the differences in the role of Islam uh, later on, particularly after uh, 17th, 18th uh, century. Throughout West Africa in oral tradition and uh, various you know, tales, uh, there are kind of similar stories about strangers who appear and who bring Islam in various ways. 
The first polities with Muslim rulers had formed along the desert edge around modern-day Mauritania, Mali, and Senegal. And according to one telling of history, a group that emerged along that desert edge from the 10th century onward had the most significant influence on the spread of Islam in West Africa. In episodes 4 and 5 of this series, we talked about the role of Berber confederations in the politics of North Africa, and we briefly discussed how the label of Berber itself is problematic for a number of reasons. One of those reasons is that the term does not refer to a monolithic community of any sort. Berber is a label applied by outsiders to a number of different groups speaking related languages and ranging across a vast territory on both edges of the Sahara Desert. In 10th century West Africa, a movement known to history as the Almoravids emerged within the Sanhaja Berber communities. The term Almoravid comes from the Arabic word Murabit. It referred to people of the Ribat, a Ribat being a sort of outpost that could simultaneously be a lodge for traders and Sufis, as well as a fortification for soldiers. On the northern edge of the Sahara, the Almoravids would build an empire that also controlled much of North Africa in Al-Andalus. But this storied history often obscures their southern Saharan origins and connections. When you look at the, the Sanhaja, the, the, the pastoralist people in the south, you know, part of the story, and again, it's a controversial part of the story, is that prior to, quote, launching jihad against other Sanhaja groups and these pagan black Africans, this is more or less what the literature tended to say, um, these, these uh, pastoralists were said to have uh, sort of replicated the hijra and sort of taken refuge in a, in a rabat. Whether it was fortified or not remains, you know, argued probably not. Was it even a physical place? Nobody's quite sure. But the idea was that they they removed themselves uh, with a small group of following uh, followers who were taught the pure form of Maliki Islam. They they agreed to follow this. They attract other followers, and then they leave their rabat and they launch their jihad. The whole concept of whether or not they had anything to do with a rabat, whether the rabat was anything physical, one one theory about it is that it was really, we're just talking about um, a kind of religious network, a kind of religious coherence, um, and that's all that was ever meant by the term. In, in Morocco itself, so in the north, you actually do have a history of these rabats, these centers of religious learning. Um, again, the term, the same term is used, the, the, the Arabic term is used. In fact, one of these was the religious home to an early Almoravid leader, we'll say. Uh, and so, in a sense, there's a connection there as well. It's a combination of a very mobile linguistic <laughs> use of Almoravid um, and it is an actual physical movement of these of these people because some of these southern Saharan Sanhaja do in fact move into what be, you know becomes Morocco, do in fact establish Marrakesh, do in fact create what we're used to thinking of as a political dynasty. But they continued to have connections and roots, you know, in their southern you know, to use Venison's term, their southern wing. And so they are the same people. A lot of what fed into that northern empire, call it what you will, came from the south, you know, and it came from the Sanhaja who were still based in the Sahara. 
they were still raising camels. Those camels were the ones that were being used in caravans that brought gold and slaves and various things to the Amravids in the north. Those same camels, well, not the same ones, but, you know, camel caravans brought goods from the north to into the Sahara and from the Sahara to the regions south of it. So that southern part, those, those Sanhaja people, whether you call them Murubatin, whether you call them Amravids, or whether you just call them Saharan Sanhaja, they, they, were, they continued to be part of that, of that dynasty. The southern Almoravids are known for their conquest of the wealthy oasis city of Audagaust and their raids against the Ghana Empire. They also played a pivotal role in the establishment of the Maliki Medheb as the dominant school of Islamic jurisprudence in West Africa. Now if we focus on a division of the Sahara into a north and south and juxtapose the Sanhaja with sub-Saharan African communities, we may come away with the mistaken impression that Islam spread from the north primarily through conquest. But if we stay focused on the dynamics of the southern desert edge, we get a more nuanced picture. At the very time that we're talking about, you know, the Amoravids somehow bringing Islam, you know, to Ghana, there were already Muslims in Ghana long before that. There were Muslims in another smaller, like before Ghana is this so-called empire. You know, there were several states or polities, again, call them what you will, again, along this desert edge and down towards the Senegal River. One of them was a place called, or a region called Takrur. And, and, and Takrur was, um, as far as we can tell, was Muslim, or at least some of, you know, one, or, one of its leaders was Muslim, some of its people were Muslim. They were with the Almoravids, you know, at a time when the Almoravids were, were you know, sort of internally conflicted in, in the Southern Sahara, and there were battles going on for who was going to be the dominant clan within what we call the Amoravids. We can't overlook that. A lot of these early battles are, are not between so-called Muslims and non-Muslims. They're between different groups of Muslims, and their differences at that point were not necessarily, in fact, I would argue, were not about the nature of Islam at all. They were political differences. The history of the Almoravids demonstrates that what was happening on the southern desert edge had a larger significance for Muslim societies in North Africa. Now let's move forward a few centuries to deal with a figure who's known to have made a big splash in the center of the Islamic world, Mansa Musa, Sultan of the Mali Empire. You know, Mansa Musa is probably in many ways one of not the most consequential rulers of you know the medieval west african trade empires that kind of come to be known in world history in the in global history uh, he was a figure that was known by his contemporaries um, outside of beyond uh, west africa um, it's often said that he was the richest man uh, to have ever lived i think i saw some listicle uh, online that showed that you know if you were to kind of value in today's you know currency that he would far outstrip Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and all the other just ridiculously rich people that we can think of today. Mensa Musa's wealth attained mythical proportions, but his presence as one of the most important rulers in the Islamic world during the 14th century is very real. 
1324, he visited Cairo during a Hajj pilgrimage to the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, and left behind quite a reputation. The historical documentation is there. When, I believe it was Omari who is writing years after Mansa Musa's visit to Cairo, he has no problem finding people to give accounts of the kind of splendor and the extravagance that uh, he his visit to Cairo and ultimately to uh, Mecca during his pilgrimage, um, you know, all of that he, he brings to um, his, his trip. And, you know, it's often said, of course, that he brings uh, so much gold that it, it, it loses its value, or at least it is devalued for, I believe it's 12 years. If you read Omari's account, it's pretty clear that Mensa Musa was trying to show off in Cairo. But that's because charity was considered a virtue for a Muslim ruler, and the many gifts he dispersed in the city affirmed his generosity for posterity. Another noteworthy moment in the account was when Mansa Musa met the Mamluk Sultan of the time, Anasir Muhammad. Musa refused to kiss the ground before the Sultan's feet, according to Al-Omri, making a prostration to God instead. Now, this was a significant moment in Islamic history for a number of reasons. As we've learned throughout this series, both Sub-Saharan Africa and Central Asia had been reservoirs of enslavable people employed in the armies of many rulers. But here we see the ruler of the largest empire south of the Sahara in an encounter with a Mamluk sultan whose father, Qalaun, was literally an enslaved Kipchak Turk who served the Ayyubid sultan. During the early 14th century, they were arguably the two most powerful figures in the Islamic world. This, of course, is interesting in and of itself. At the same time, I'm really taken with uh, an observation that historian Michael Gomez makes in his recent, uh, relatively recent book, African Dominion, that there is a curious absence of Mansa Musa in the region's oral tradition. So often when we talk about African history, oral tradition is one of the primary means of making African history in terms of, you, you know, um, kind of reconstructing it. And yet, this very consequential figure for uh, global history isn't present in the regional tradition. And I think that curious absence uh, really captures some major problems, limitations when we think of global history, right? The very reason why someone might be uh, important beyond one's kind of uh, home space, home region, might be the very reason why they're inconsequential within it, or vice versa. Mansa Musa may have earned a reputation as the most wealthy ruler ever known to people in Egypt or Iberia where a famous 14th century Catalan atlas commissioned by the king of Aragon depicted him holding a large piece of gold. But in West Africa, he might have simply been the rich heir of a long line of powerful sultans. In, in some ways, yes, Mansa Musa enters into the historical record with this extravagant trip. Yes, he puts West Africa on the map as is evidence in the Catalan uh, atlas, right? But what does that mean locally? That's where I think we see this really ambiguous legacy, this ambiguous inheritance. So within the oral tradition of West Africa, it's all about Sundiata Keita, who is the founder of the empire of um, Mali, uh, who was a predecessor of uh, Mansa Musa. Within the oral tradition, 
Sundiata Keita represents a figure who really establishes social order and is making sense of the space that he is in. In contrast, if we think about what might have been the effects of taking so much gold, so much wealth, taking so many people in his entourage out of uh, West Africa is a possible impoverishing of that space. So something that we see over the kind of long durée of the history of Islam in West Africa is that um, the Hajj pilgrimage is an incredible undertaking, right? Let's think about the distance here, right? It's an incredible distance and to organize uh, an entourage, it takes an incredible amount of resources. And, you know, there are different times and places, I'm thinking in particular in the, um, you know, in the Sokoto Caliphate much later in the 18th, early 19th century, you know, the position, the position is taken that actually Hajj isn't necessary. Uh, because it's too much of an expense. It requires too many resources. You know, struggling on the behalf of uh, Islam locally is far more important. But yet, Masa Musa makes this move. And it could be that it was a strategy for, for power. You know, not exclusively that. Like, you know, there were likely very sincere reasons why he went as well. But it, it, it could be one of these situations where he was kind of an outlier uh, and he did the thing that no one else would do. Does that make him great or does that make him uh, something else? Uh, you know, that's up for debate. Looking back from the 20th century, it's hard not to admire what Mansa Musa represented. West Africa has passed through a centuries-long experience of colonialism and resultant impoverishment vis-a-vis -vis other regions of the world. Millions of West Africans were also carried off to the Americas by European slave traders during the early modern period. Their descendants continue to live with the legacy of enslavement long after the practice itself was abolished. In this context, the image of a powerful black sovereign on the world stage is certainly compelling. Yet Mansa Musa controlled an empire, one that he inherited from his predecessors, who built their position by extracting wealth from their populace, which included profiting from the traffic and exploitation of enslaved people. And in this regard, Islam was a double-edged sword, tied to the identity of an elite class while also binding them to the responsibilities towards the growing number of Muslims they ruled over. The history of Islam in West Africa, in many ways, is paradoxical, if not contradictory. The key way to navigate those contradictions, not surprising for a historian, is to periodize. And I think that what happens uh, before the fall of the Songhai Empire is quite distinct from the dynamics that happen after. And um, the, the division, the temporal, the historical division that matters most, for me, it's, it's really that. Um, what happens before, you know, 1591, Toydimbi, and what happens um, after in the place of Islam, there two very different dynamics. The place of Islam and the identity of imperial states, that only happens Songhai and before. And uh, while there are Islamic political formations that happen after and the wave of Islamic revolutions, in particular late 18th, 19th century, it's of a very different order. 
To get to the heart of this paradox, we need to talk about Islamic law and what it came to mean in West Africa. By the time that the Songhai Empire eclipsed the Mali Empire during the 15th century, the region was developing a tradition of Islamic jurisprudence in the Maliki school of thought, which also predominated in Iberia and North Africa. It is certainly um, the case that Maliki thought became, you know, the predominant school of jurisprudence in West Africa. And, you know, and particularly, um, you know, because through the activities of, you know, the, the, the Almoravids, right, in, in Morocco, right, who, um, you know, sort of sponsored Maliki jurists. And so what would happen is that, you know, certainly by the 11th century, there would be a very rich tradition of Maliki jurisprudence. And it would, you know, spread um, throughout the region through traders and scholars as well as, you know, um, Sufi saints. But this is also not to say that, that there was no um, sort of recognition or even engagement in, indeed with other schools of jurisprudence. You know, there was recognition of the diversity of schools of thought, but Maliki thought was certainly the most influential and, you know, probably the most influential foundational text. Well, I mean, apart from, of course, the you know, Imam Malik's you know, Al-Muwatta, which, you know, obviously is, is the foundational text. But, you know, there was also um, a very famous text, Al-Muqtasar, which I'd you know, been reading. It was a really foundational text that scholars would engage with. A very striking thing that existed then, which we don't see today, which you know is also really important in conceptualizing how Islamic law took a form and how it developed at that time, was that there was a really sort of rich engagement between, on the one hand, the Kurdish, the judges, and then the Muftis were the jurists. Right? So there was always sort of this exchange back and forth. The institutions of learning, you know, um, you know, were very, um, you know, they were very dynamic. The most um, um, famous, as we now know today, is when Timbuktu, right? So you know, Sankore, for instance, was a very famous um, center of learning that was and these centers of learning were usually sort of mosque schools right so they were both mosques at the same time that they were schools um, you know and, and scholars you know could sort of engage across the sciences it was also you know the case that many of these scholars would engage in different branches of the sciences which again runs um, again contrary to what we think of as you know the Islamic legal specialist it's not how we would sort of conceive of conceptualize of courts today because even the judges themselves were you know, sort of engaging for instance with muftis who were not the sitting judges but they could have tremendous influence on the outcome of actual cases. The Maliki school was one of many schools of thought but its role in West Africa developing its own local tradition of Islamic learning and thought may have been more than incidental. Someone like Amduha Hampate Ba who was a uh, writer kind of an ethnographer from colonial Mali and thereafter. And, you know, he kind of made the argument that Islam was already in West Africa in so many different ways, right, in terms of the kinds of practices uh, and traditions. And so when, you know, uh, merchants and traders and scholars arrive, uh, you know, they're very, um, it's a very easy transition and it becomes very attractive to um, uh, West Africans who are otherwise uh, followers of ancestral religions. And one of the really sort of striking things about this Maliki thought is that it gives a lot of room to local custom, right, which then, you know, empowered its jurists to engage with the foundation Maliki text, but also the primary text, you know, um, in Modelo, so, you know, the Quran and the Sunnah, while also 
taking into careful consideration, you know, the local circumstances, uh, which, you know, really, really enriched the jurisprudence um, of the scholars. And so as these scholars, you know, expanded upon the law, institutions suddenly came into existence, especially in those areas where, with well-developed state forms, like, you know, in the Songhai Empire, we would also say that much later in the Sokodo, um, you know, Caliphate, you know, in other Nigeria, we would say that in the Kanembono um, Empire as well, which was, you know, in the Lake Chad Basin area, so northern Nigeria, um, you know, Niger, Chad, Cameroon. Maliki thought does make for more room for, you know, for custom, and which might also sort of account for why, you know, some persons might imagine that sort of African Islamic law is not sort of Islamic law per se, right? And of course, Maliki law itself places, you know, um, immense significance on the custom of the people of Medina. You know, if something is not clear, you know, in the law, then we ought to look, um, you know, at the practice of the people. It's usually the case that obviously, you, you know, it's, you might have, you know, a principle, but then how it comes to life in an actual case, you know, would, um, you know, would largely depend on, you know, the, the background of the judge or the jurist. And this is not obviously, you know, to, to discount with the other principles that jurists take into consideration, like Moslaha, which is also a really, really big sort of concern of Maliki jurisprudence. But Maliki law does give a lot of room um, to custom. You know, and one of the reasons um, why, you know, scholars have argued why Maliki law, you know, you know, found such fertile ground in Africa, right, was that scholars were able to sort of really expound on the law by taking into, cons- you know, into consideration, the, you know, the unique local um, circumstances and, you know, and it's, you know, well known, um, you know, Africa, you know, it's just, it has, it's really diverse in the customary practices um, that exist, um, you know, in its different parts, right? So even in one modern sort of post-colonial city in Africa, you might have what as many as in Nigeria, for instance, over 300 ethnicities, just as many customary laws and yeah, even sort of even sub-variations within. Um, and so uh, Maliki law, you know, it, you know, has historically taken that into consideration, which is reflected in the jurisprudence and the rich tradition of jurisprudence, but also in the form uh, Maliki thought and Maliki scholarship came to take, um, you know, um, you know, over time, especially in pre-colonial times. So again, the colonial sort of manifestation and it's, you know, it's post-colonial form is, you know, a really different sort of question. But in pre-colonial times, um, Maliki scholarship was, it really engaged with, um, you know, the diversity of the customary, um, you know, circumstances. While the early Muslim rulers of West Africa were known to the rest of the Islamic world, even in their day, Scholars of recent decades have shown just how early local populations began to convert to Islam so that by the early modern period, Islam could absolutely be said to have been a religious tradition rooted in the context of local societies. West Africa became a center of Islamic learning in its own right. You know, actually, this might take us back to Mansa Musa. When he comes back uh, from his pilgrimage, uh, he brings a lot of people with him. Right. Um, He brings a kind of uh, architects, uh, you know, people to build mosques and uh, teachers, scholars of various sorts. So I think that is a really important moment. Uh, You know, I suspect that even Ibn Battuta's journey to West Africa, you know, if we we recall uh, Ibn Battuta's big world tour, happens before the trip his trip to west africa his trip to west africa is a kind of specific mission that uh the rule of morocco dispatches him on it's because of of the kind of waves that Mansa musa has become and, and it's really developed an interest among um kind of other muslim sovereigns 
to see Mali as an important Muslim state in, in some respect. So under the empire of Mali is usually when we think of uh, a very important, though it's imperial, uh, th there's a, a substantial uh, kind of uh, Muslim culture that is developing uh, w within that empire. Uh, but then the, the next really important moment is the kind of second phase of the Songhai Empire after Askia, Askia Muhammad, uh, which uh, is often thought of as something of a, you know, going back to Gomez, he calls it uh, a, a renaissance. Askia Muhammad creates a kind of uh, a moment of very important uh, flourishing uh, culturally, intellectually, economically, uh, etc. Uh, this is also a moment where you have kind of distinct smaller political formations in which sovereigns are Muslim. I'm thinking specifically of uh, um, uh, Borno and others. There's always sort of this assumption, right, that Africa is always um, a place, you know, that is sort of shut off from the rest of the world and um, sort of there's no exchange of ideas. And at best, it is this place where um, knowledge might be received but never actually sort of exported. But, you know, but scholarship has shown that Africa was not just, you know, um, did not only sort of, you know, receive, it was not shut off. Suddenly, it did also exported um, knowledge. It did, you know, so the scholarship of, you know, some of the, you know, the famous sort of scholars in, in Timbuktu, um, Sankori, um, you know, especially in Sankori, College produced scholars who were not only famous across the region and whose works were not only tremendously um, influential across the region, but who also exported both their work across the Sahara. And students came from the Maghreb, right? So from um, you know Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, right? So to study in great centers of learning in in Africa, you know, in especially in the Songhai um, Empire. But also some of these scholars actually you know went right. So some of them would be you know invited by sultans, right, to to come and sort of teach um, students across um, you know across the empire. What did it mean to be a Muslim at any given moment in these regions that we're talking about? I just felt that this was a critical issue. During, during this period, one can get an idea of how people were questioning the meaning of being a Muslim in this sort of the desert edge region across much of West Africa by looking at the question of slavery. At the end of the 15th century, the Songhai Empire controlled a large territory stretching all the way from modern-day Niger and Nigeria to the Atlantic coast. Its major centers of learning were Gao, Jenne, and the world-famous city of Timbuktu. Askia Muhammad, who ruled Songhai at the beginning of the 16th century, is the ruler associated with its apex. In addition to gold and salt, knowledge was becoming one of the major products of the southern edge of the Sahara. Sources from the period reveal that the relationship between sultans and scholars in the region was not completely harmonious. And this is because Saharan scholars like Muhammad al-Magili were becoming some of the first of their kind in the Islamic world to grapple with the changing nature of power, specifically the practice of slavery. In, in one instance, uh, in the case of al-Magili, 
um, a, a, a new ruler of one of those empires we were just talking about, uh, Songhai, um, came to power having overthrown um, another ruler who, who was a Muslim. And this is tricky because technically there's no justification for this. The justification came to be the same one that many Muslims used as they attacked other Muslims. You're not a good enough Muslim. So now, you know, this guy, Askiya Muhammad, um, is, is turning to a, you know, a cleric, a, a, a learned Muslim scholar, and saying, okay, now that I've, you know, I've overthrown this guy, now I'm, I'm supposed to be the, you know, I'm, I'm the, um, the epitome of the, the good Muslim ruler. How do I be a good Muslim ruler? You know, here's what's going on. Tell me how I'm supposed to be a good Muslim ruler. Well, one of the key topics that keeps coming up in his questions have to do with slavery. So we, we get a lot of discussion in El-Magili's comments about, about slavery. Most of the time we pay attention to what El-Magili says. What I'm suggesting is that we should pay attention to the questions. Because it seems to me that in the questions that this new king, Askia, is, is asking, this is where we get to see inside his view of his own state. He is definitely a Muslim, but he is also a political ruler. He's somebody who has just carried out a coup d'etat and overthrown a ruler. He's now trying to get people united. He's trying to make sure that he has a solid economy going, that, you know, that, that commerce is in place, uh, that he's not going to get rebellions, and that where he thinks he might have rebellions and problems, he's basically trying to find a way to get rid of them. And he wants to be able to um, use a lot of the slave labor that his, you know, the other, the, the former king had in place. He wants to be able to usurp a lot of the property that people have. When you look at his questions and then you start thinking about them from the different points of view. Yes, I want to be a good Muslim ruler, but hey, wait, I also want to be a good ruler. Oh, wait, I actually just really want to be a ruler. I want to exercise power. How do I get power out of this situation? And, and as I say, a lot of the questions revolve around slavery. So it's not that we're going in saying, I want to know about slavery. But as we look, if we pay attention to his questions, we realize how central slavery is to this larger picture. And that's where we can start to learn a lot. At the turn of the 16th century, legal questions surrounding slavery in West Africa were becoming more complicated a large segment of the population had become Muslim. Muslims and people living under the protection of a Muslim ruler were in theory off-limits when it came to the question of enslavement. But that was at odds with some of the incentives of a new ruler. By the end of the 16th century, these questions surrounding slavery would tie more explicitly into the question of race. The Songhai Empire was faltering, and a new dynasty was on the rise on the other side of the Sahara in modern-day Morocco, the Saudi dynasty. During the 16th century, the Saudis were among the many aspirant empire builders on the world stage, and the first in North Africa to effectively deploy firearms. The Saudi Sultan Ahmed al-Mansur, who came from an Arab lineage, claimed descent from the family of the Prophet and the title of Caliph. Across the Sahara, Songhai had a lot that such a ruler would need to build a new imperial caliphate. Gold, salt, people to conscript or enslave, and important centers of learning. His rise would spell the end for Songhai. By the end of the Songhai Empire, right, and this is a very 
critical moment in, in global history in 1591, Battle of Tondimbi. Um, Ahmed Mansour has sent the Armagh to capture the, the salt mines and the gold mines uh, of, of West Africa. You know, there's uh, the scholar Ahmed Baba, who is um, from Timbuktu, and uh, he's imprisoned and taken to Marrakesh. So he's sitting under house arrest in Morocco, um, you know, giving all this advice and, and interpretation. And a lot of the, okay, so a lot of the questions that we're interested in are asked by merchants. And these are merchants who want to do business, you know, in, in Timbuktu and so on. It's really interesting how, how many of their questions have to do with slavery. It tells us something about their own view in this instance of the, the, the society, you know, to the south of the Sahara. And in, in this particular instance, one of the most important questions that gets asked, there's lots of interesting stuff, but one of the most important questions that gets asked, it's the one that most people raise, is somebody asks him, so who is it we can legally enslave? And who is it we can legally buy and sell as slaves? Is anybody who is black, you know, is this a legitimate reason to capture, buy, sell, use? So here at the beginning of the 17th century, there's this fantastic uh, document, that is a fatwa, which is the Miraj Saud, uh, you know, the ladder of ascent. And in it, He's asked, is it not true that blacks who are taken, aren't they all slaves because they were conquered? And Ahmed Baba says, you know, in a nutshell, no, no, no. <laughs> we have never heard of any such thing. And so those rules don't um, apply. It's whether or not they are a believer. You know, in fact, if someone says that they're Muslim, uh, the burden of proof is, you know, really on you as the slave trader and it's best uh, to free them. The very fact that somebody is asking the question suggests that at this moment, so now we're in late 16th century, the idea of race has become a piece of the story. But they wouldn't ask the question otherwise. And that wasn't an issue that was brought up with El Magili. Maybe something's changing. But his answer in this instance really is interesting too, because he goes through this long story about how we decide who is really Muslim and who isn't. And that's to me fascinating, not because it tells you who can or can't be enslaved, but because in that whole process, we're getting some insight into how people are understanding what being Muslim is. He gives a very extensive list of the communities, political formations, groups considered to be Muslim at this time. Most most of this region, uh, people have, are voluntarily, you know, they're becoming Muslims. And so, uh, you know, that means they're really committed. So you, you can't really touch those people. The list is so long and so extensive that it suggests that it wasn't simply like the big imperial formations that were associated with uh, Muslim scholars and might have had some, you know, nominal uh, Islamic affiliation, which is in, in older scholarship is sometimes thought. 
what this list uh, suggests is that actually is quite widespread and it includes groups that aren't thought of as being particularly hierarchical, right? So that, you know, there very well may have been a much more kind of widespread and vibrant Islamic practice. So again, what I'm hearing is the changes that are occurring in how people see themselves in a time when more and more people are wanting to see themselves as Muslims. And that question of slavery opens it up. Now, all that being said, the other thing to consider is that for Ahmed Baba, uh, what matters is the status of the ruler. You know, who do you uh, pray behind and what is his status, right? That's what matters. And so the entire question of, well, how Muslim were they really is a question that implies a certain understanding about of religion that is, uh, dare I say, modern, right, of individual belief and practice. You know, reading Ahmed Baba, his understanding, dare we say, was quite ec- ecumenical. I don't think we just need to go in there and look at slavery. I, I realize a lot of people do that. But I think what people who do that are doing is they're missing the fact that it's not slavery. It's that slavery has is such an integral part of society that it, it starts to open up all these other questions. Ahmed Baba lived at a crossroads in the history of West Africa. The fall of Songhai meant the end of Islamic empires in the area for some time, but Islam continued to spread. And at the same time, the practice of slavery was also transforming. As we discussed in a previous episode, the Iberian kingdoms of Spain and Portugal colonized a number of islands off the Atlantic coast and built sugar plantations there during the 15th century. With the discovery of the Americas, that plantation model spread to the Caribbean and eventually to North and South America. The creation of plantations in the Americas caused the scale of the slave trade to grow, especially from the early 17th century onward. European maritime empires established trading colonies along the coast of West Africa that were engaged to varying extents in the transatlantic slave trade. The Portuguese, the Dutch, and later the British and French. With the rise of the Atlantic slave trade and the fall of Songhai, Islam's emancipatory discourses surrounding slavery became more salient. By the time you get to the 17th century, the racialization of slavery has really made uh, a definite turn. You know, earlier, uh, slavery is pretty um, equal opportunity. Any number of people can kind of be uh, enslaved, and the close association of blackness and enslavability isn't quite there in earlier periods. But by the 17th century, blackness and enslavability are coupled. Of course, I think this is a result of the disappearance of a black sovereign uh, on the global stage, right? So with the fall of Songhai, with the fall of black sovereignty, what we might call today, you know, black sovereignty, it enables, it is the enabling condition of the racialization or the completion of the racialization of slavery. So that's one thing that's happening. The second thing is that the scale of the Atlantic slave trade, it it heightens the stakes significantly. And it creates a situation in which 
uh, people are really uh, struggling to identify a means to protect themselves in a very volatile context. And again, even you know, even in the 18th century, the population isn't yet majority uh, Muslim, right? It's really the, a product of these revolutionary mo- movements that we start to see something approaching the uh, numbers we're familiar with today. And I think that rulers who were not Muslim, who were really engaged in the slave trade and the kind of practices of warfare that uh, were part and parcel of the slave trade, made ancestral religions appear to be very much a part of that predation. Islam was poised to be seen as a revolutionary force in the um, 18th and 19th century. Muslim sovereignty waned in West Africa after the fall of Songhai. Even before the expansion of European colonial rule in the region, the economic center of gravity had moved towards the largely non-Muslim kingdoms of the coast, where the Atlantic slave trade had an enormous impact. This experience of colonialism would utterly transform the political formations of West African societies. You know, it's not sort of for no reason, right, that many scholars have been really invested in understanding the ways in which the post-colonial West African state or African state or, you know, the post-colonial manifestations of Islam, you know, are in many ways continuations, parts of the unfinished nature of the colonial past itself. The post-colonial state itself, it is, you know, a colonial, it's a, you know, was midwifed by colonial modernity, right, um, across the continent. The impact that European colonialism had on Islamic law, as many have argued, including myself, was such as, you know, to radically alter Islamic law as well as customary law on the continent. As Rabia Takande explained, colonialism did not erase Islam in West Africa by any means. However, the changes to local legal systems under colonial states had a profound impact on the formation of modern Islamic law. In Nigeria, the codification of Islamic law totally changed the role of judges and jurists, introducing rigid criminal codes that stipulated certain forms of punishment which had in practice seldom been applied due to the traditions of jurisprudence in West Africa. Akande considers the situation of what she calls judges without jurists to be a colonial legacy with a lasting impact on how people in the region imagine Islamic law today. That's one reason why, for scholars of Islamic law and politics in West Africa, the lives of figures like Ahmed Baba and the legacies of independent jurists and scholarship in the region are so relevant. I guess in some ways, you know, West Africa is dealing with modernity in a much more direct way sooner than other parts of the Muslim world. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it, right? I, I think being subject to the Atlantic slave trade means you, you, you have to figure out much sooner than, you know, kind of colonial rule of what to do about modernity and, you know, rapacious capital. The example of West Africa underscores the value of maintaining a global perspective when talking about the history of Islam. If you look to the major early modern centers of the Islamic world, like Istanbul, Cairo, Esfahan, and so forth, 
You won't necessarily find Muslim jurists theorizing the issues of race and slavery that emerged as a central question during the 19th century. But in West Africa, you'll find scholars thinking about these questions very early on in the development of the Atlantic economy, even when their ideas challenged the interests of Muslim rulers. And what they said did not remain confined to the West African context. The works of these scholars were not only exported, but some of them actually went across the Sahara to teach in Morocco. Much later in, um, you know, in the Lake Chad Basin area, Uthman Danfodio's, um, you know, his handbook on Maliki Fiqh, um, you know, has been tremendously influential even till today, right? So scholars are still studying Uthman Danfodio's and Maliki Fiqh. But even beyond um, North Africa itself, right? So scholars are, you know, beginning to examine how the ideas and the work of slaves in the United States who had been brought from West Africa, right? How those ideas actually, you know, survived even um, after they got into captivity, right? So maybe the most famous of them um, at the moment is Omar Said, right? Um, who was born in, in the late 18th century um, in Senegal, was captured in his studies. He was a scholar. He was, you know, a teacher and a scholar when he was brought across the Atlantic and, um, you know, and, you know, and lived in, you know, um, in South Carolina and then in North Carolina, and and, and his manuscripts have been discovered, um, you know, and uh, on exhibition at the Library of Congress. So those ideas actually did not only travel willingly, right? Some of them traveled, you know, less willingly across the Atlantic, um, you know, um, to the Americas, and you know, and and I can imagine that scholars will be, you know, will continue to discover more and more of those kinds of works. If you'd like to learn more about Islam in West Africa, we've got two interviews on the Ottoman History Podcast website that I absolutely recommend. One with Usman Khan deals with the Muslim scholarly traditions of West Africa, including authors writing in other languages than Arabic. And the other with Oludamini Ogunaike discusses the Sufi traditions of West Africa through the lens of a form of sung poetry praising the Prophet Muhammad, known as Medih. In the next installment of this series, we're going to wrap up a millennium of history by exploring the changing map of the early modern Islamic world. The fall of the Songhai Empire at the turn of the 17th century was not the first, but rather the last of a series of momentous shifts in our region of study. We'll talk about the long end of Al-Andalus and the consequences of the slow erasure of a Muslim presence in Iberia. We'll also talk about the fall of the Byzantine Empire as well as the Mamluk Sultanate, which were both absorbed into the ascendant Ottoman Empire. As we'll discuss, the Ottoman Empire was one of three major Islamic empires that rose to the fore, in part by mastering the use and production of firearms. We'll talk about connection and competition with those empires, the Safavids of Iran and the Mughals of South Asia, and tie up some other threads that have run throughout this series. I'm Chris Grayton. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.